Welcome to the SPE Podcast, powered by the Society of Petroleum Engineers. You're listening to SPE Live, sustainable energy for the next 50 years. The audio from this episode was previously recorded on January 23rd, 2023. And now your moderator, 2022 SPE President, Kamel Benesser. Welcome to the SPE Live on sustainable energy for the next 50 years. My name is Kamel Benesser. I'm the 2022 SPE President. I'm also the CEO of Numedia Energy Consulting and Chairman of uh, the Damorf company. Uh, Today's SPE Live will last about 30 minutes. We encourage you to ask questions during the program. Before introducing our guest, I would like to invite you to attend the 2023 SPE Offshore Europe Conference and Exhibition between September 5 and September 8, 2023 in Aberdeen, Scotland. It's now my great pleasure to introduce our distinguished guest. Ian Phillips has over 35 years of experience in the upstream oil and gas and climate change, including 18 years with oil operating companies and six years with a major service company. Since October 2022, Ian has been an independent consultant in the energy transition space and is currently the director at Energy Transition Advisory. Ian has long been active with the Society of Petroleum Engineers. He holds a master's in petroleum engineering from Harriet Watt University and an MBA through the Open University. Our second panelist is Marta Lafuente. She is the regional sales manager in Europe and Africa for NOV Grand Pridego. Marta holds a master's in industrial engineering from the University of Barcelona and an MBA from the University of Houston. Marta has large experience dealing with international projects and has held several technical and commercial positions related to drilling products globally. She's the author of several patents, SPE papers, and several other technical publications related to drilling and completions. Our third panelist is Kevin Gallagher. He leads the digital transformation team for the Europe and Africa region of CNOOC International. He has broad experience in the upstream oil and gas industry, having held a variety of roles, both onshore and offshore, in the subsurface and production functions, and as a business advisor. Kevin holds a Master in Reservoir Evaluation and Management from Harriet Watt University and Masters in Electronics from the University of Edinburgh. Ian, Martha, Kevin, welcome to the SPE Live. Thank you, Kamel. Welcome to everybody joining us live. Thank you, Kamel. It looks like we have uh, lost Ian for a minute here. Um, Okay. But he should be back uh, real quick. Let's give him a few seconds to to come back. I guess that's what life makes you. These are some of the uh, pitfalls of being live. Just 
trying to reach out to Ian? Yeah. Okay. So uh, while we're waiting for Ian, uh, let's go to Marta. Yes. Okay. So Marta, what can the oil and gas sector do immediately to address climate change goals? Welcome out. That is an excellent question. And I think a question that a lot of people uh, in uh, Europe, Africa, and the whole world are asking themselves. Uh, first, let me start by saying that oil and gas companies are facing a critical challenge as the world is increasingly shifting toward clean energy and working on the energy transition. And now is the time more than ever for the oil and gas industry to say where they stand and what they mean when they are saying that they participate to the energy transition and to also state what can they do to accelerate this energy transition. But as we all say very well, um, the oil and gas industry is very, very large uh, and it's made of a variety of companies that operate in very different locations that have very different constraints. So the answer to what can the oil and gas sector do to immediately address the climate change goals may not be only one. It can be a variety of approaches that will depend on each company uh, circumstances. But there is uh, there are some things that are maybe a little bit generic, but that will work for everybody, for everybody in oil and gas and for everybody in all industries. The first of them is to make sure that we are all working toward reducing the environmental footprint of our operations. This is true for everybody, but this is very important also for oil and gas. As of today, 15% of the global energy-related greenhouse emissions come from the process of getting oil and gas out of the ground. And to be honest, a large part of these emissions can be brought down relatively quickly and easily. Uh, so what can they do? They can work on producing methane leaks to the atmosphere, which would be the single most important and cost-effective way for the industry to bring down those emissions. But there is, uh, those are not the only ones. There are other opportunities to lower emissions uh, of delivering oil and gas by eliminating the routine flaring and integrating renewables and uh, low-carbon electricity into upstream and LNG developments. Those are initiatives that uh, a lot of companies in the North Sea, for example, are already doing and that will be featured during the offshore Europe this year. Other, other options that oil and gas companies have is diversifying their energy operations to include renewables and other low-carbon technologies. Oil and gas companies are very well positioned to do so because uh, we have a very extensive know-how and capital available, which is not the case for uh, other companies. As an industry, we can play a crucial role in accelerating the deployment of key renewable options, so such an uh, offshore wind, um, and also enable reaching maturity for some key intensive clean energy technologies, such as carbon capture or the utilization and storage of hydrogen. Something else that oil and gas companies may consider is to invest in alternative fuels, such as hydrogen, biomethane, and advanced biofuels, that are supposed to, or are expect, to account for about 15% of the overall fuel supply in about 10 years. Uh, if uh, those technologies don't reach maturity, 
and probably they will only be able to reach maturity if uh, industries like oil and gas invest in them, the energy transition will become much more harder and much more expensive. But let's say things as they are. Oil and gas is key, it's part of the energy transition, and it really has a key role to play to it. But we cannot do it alone. For the energy transition to success, we need oil and gas, but we also need governments, investors, companies, and everybody to collaborate and to be firmly and fully on board. Thank you very much, uh, Marta, for these uh, great uh, insights. Let's move to Ian. Ian, you have uh, quite a, a large experience. You have recently been a distinguished lecture series uh, with the SP. My question to you, is there a role for oil and gas in a sustainable future? Thanks, Kamel, and uh, hello, everybody. Um, I, I do think the answer is very much yes. Uh, there is a role for oil and gas, but precisely what that role is, I think, was, is variable and rather depends on us. So in the near term, let's be clear, uh, nearly 80% of the world's energy supply comes from oil, gas, or coal. So those three hydrocarbons are powering civilization as we know it. But awkwardly, we now know that, of course, the burning that hydrocarbon is emitting a lot of CO2 to the atmosphere. So quite simply, we can't just switch off oil and gas in the way that some would suggest that we can. In the long term, I think the future uh, for the oil and gas industry is very much uh, dependent upon us. Can we decarbonize our product in a way that means that we can continue to use that energy, but we're not trashing the environment. So we can do things like make hydrocarbon from natural gas, creating a fuel which is clean at the point of consumption. And as long as we capture and dispose of the CO2 produced, we, well, we're achieving the decarbonisation objective. In addition, we can capture the carbon after the hydrocarbon is burned and dispose of the carbon dioxide deep underground with CCS. So there's a possibility, let's say, that we could be relevant in the long term. But we need to be clear, there's a lot of people think we are part of the problem and that um, in the long term, hydrocarbons will be dead. Another aspect of what we might be able to do uh, as new technology develops is to actually decarbonize our product. There are chemical and biological technologies currently in universities which would uh, extract the hydrogen from hydrocarbons, turn the carbon into something useful, and you've got a very different solution to the problem. But it doesn't exist right now. But I guess my view is we don't have an absolute right to survive. We need to work hard and fast to address the threat of climate change uh, that's associated with our product. And a, a parting thought on this is a few years ago, um, you might remember that Kodak dominated the photography world and they died because they didn't think the world could exist without film. So I hope we don't uh, follow the path of Kodak, but it very much is down to us to figure out how we decarbonize our product and our production. Thank you very much, uh, Ian. Let's move to Kevin. Uh, about the petroleum engineers that are uh, entering the uh, industry today or will be entering in the near future, this next generation 
have they made a good or bad career choice? Okay, thanks, Kamel. Um, in my view, absolutely, they haven't made a bad choice. I think they're making a, a good career choice. Um, I would start by saying I can understand why the question is being asked. Uh, petroleum engineering, it can be thought of as being quite specialist. And as Ian's just mentioned, there's, there's a tremendous amount of societal pressure to reduce global emissions and limit the, impact of lime, uh, limit the impacts of climate change. However, I do think that there absolutely there will be a place for oil and gas in the future. Um, if, we, if we make the changes that Ian's just talked about there, uh, there will be a place. Um, if you look at any of the kind of macro studies, uh, how primary, the world's primary energy demand will be met uh, in 2050, most of them converge around 40 to 50 percent still coming from oil and gas. That's down from around uh, from fossil fuels, sorry, down from around 80 percent today. So absolutely, I think we will still require the skills of petroleum engineers to produce these products as efficiently as possible. And I think actually there's potentially a risk of a skill shortage due to uh, retirements and people diversifying into other areas. Also, we shouldn't forget that CO2 storage and potentially hydrogen storage will be conducted deep underground, and this will require the same skill sets as oil and gas production. So knowledge of the subsurface, knowledge of fluid flow and porous media, well construction, etc. And I do see carbon captured and storage increasingly playing a central role in that low carbon energy system of the future. I think focusing on the job itself, for me, petroleum engineering is one of the best engineering jobs out there. Um, it exposes you to really interesting and challenging projects. There's lots of opportunity to travel. You're often working in very diverse teams that are rich in collaboration and exposed to the latest technologies. What may change, what will likely change is the physical location of the assets people are working on as we move from more mature basins to more frontier geographies. Um, I don't see any issues there. It's already routine to be working on data from other parts of the world from where you might be located. And I do think for, for recent and for new petroleum engineering graduates, it is important to, to be inside an energy company. That's where you have the opportunity to have a voice to influence how that company operates and how those future opportunities are developed. So in summary, no, I think we'll continue to see a strong demand for petroleum engineers and we'll continue to have new developments that will provide great career opportunities. Thank you very much, Kevin. Uh, I would like to ask the same question to Ian and Martha. Is that a good career choice? to be a petroleum, a new petroleum engineer, Ian? So I, I agree with much of what Kevin has said and, and perhaps would add that uh, if carbon capture and storage and possibly even hydrogen storage is going to happen, then it needs the same skills that we have in the oil and gas industry. You still need uh, geophysicists, you still need geologists, you still need reservoir engineers. It's just the problem is slightly different. You're flowing a fluid the other way 
Um, and of course, it's got different properties and you're worried about slightly different things. But for example, in a carbon capture and storage project, I don't need proven reserves, but I certainly need a proven storage capacity because I'm then going to go and sell that uh, storage capacity to a client who wishes to dispose of their CO2. And if I'm going to sign up to that as a commercial proposition, I need to be confident in the storage capacity. So I think the same skills are equally applicable in both carbon dioxide storage and in hydrogen storage. And for that reason, I think that uh, certainly students learning today and those already in their careers, uh, yeah, you might have to do a little bit of cross-training and uh, sort of get familiar with these new fluids, but it's, it's essentially it's the same skills. And I think there will still be a need for those for some time to come. Thank you very much, Ian. Uh, Mark? Yeah, so just to build on people working in oil and gas, I think uh, there's still room uh, for uh, young engineers to work in oil and gas. Uh, both my answer and Ian uh, showed how oil and gas has to be very much part of the energy transition. So I invite every young engineer out there to think if they want to be part of the solution. Do they have a chance? I know oil and gas is not maybe the most popular industry right now, but there is a chance to help an industry um, that can bring a lot to this energy transition do it right. They can be part of that, and they should think really about that, how this will probably have an um, impact that is more important than it would be maybe on, on some other opportunities that they have been thinking about. There's a real chance of having a real impact on the energy transition and on the future of uh, the energy of the world if you work in oil and gas. So just think about that. Thank you very much uh, to all of you. I just wanted to add that if you take one area which is carbon uh, capture and storage, which was pioneered in the, uh, in the North Sea in, uh, in Norway, uh, actually the prospects uh, of uh, going forward is that by the end of the decade, uh, we could be injecting uh, from 200 to 400 million tons of CO2 per year uh, in CO2 storage uh, compared to less than 40. So this will open up uh, quite a, a wide range of opportunities, as was mentioned by our panelists, to uh, geophysicists, to reservoir engineers, to drillers, to engage in uh, a new uh, domain. And going forward to 2050, uh, which where the new petroleum engineers will still be working, uh, we could go as high as four or five billion tons uh, of CO2 being injected. So uh, let me uh, just add another point, is that the SPE is, uh, has engaged in a number of those domains that are peripheral to uh, oil and gas today. And we have created a number of technical sections, and uh, uh, one of them uh, is actually related to CO2 storage. I have uh, a very good comment from uh, our colleague, uh, Bob Pearson from Canada, uh, former regional director, who is mentioning that SPE 
has uh, published a guideline for the uh, storage resource management system, which will provide a basis for estimating storage. And as Ian was mentioning, uh, instead of doing it for an injection system, uh, for a production system, we'll be doing it for an injection system. Uh, we have also a hydrogen uh, technical section, which was created under the, the leadership of uh, Bob Pearson. And we also have a, a new, very active session on geothermal. So all these are areas that uh, are adjacent and use the skills of our petroleum engineers. So in the future, petroleum engineers with a very strong background will be able to uh, upskill, to reskill uh, in those domains which uh, his or her uh, potential is very much uh, in demand. So let me follow with a question on some perspectives for the North Sea, and this would go to Ian. So what are the perspectives from decommissioning? Uh, and how can it play a, uh, play a role? So, uh, so there's a lot of talk about how decommissioning uh, can support the sustainable future. A lot of um, people hoping, notably, I think, oil companies that have the decommissioning liability and would like to move it to the right on their schedules. Um, my view is that there is some potential for uh, energy transition to use some of the uh, now unrequired oil and gas assets, but by no means all of them. So if I start down in the reservoir, um, when you're injecting CO2, and particularly at the volumes that you were mentioning just a few moments ago, Kamel, you need a lot of empty space underground. And the best source of empty space is a depleted gas field. So I think depleted gas fields are likely to be uh, probably the leading contenders for storage. Other stores such as depleted oil and gas fields, sorry, oil fields and certainly aquifers are just a lot harder because there's a lot of, uh, or not so much volume has been removed. And so you might have to end up doing things like producing brine to create the space for CO2 to get into aquifers. Um, the When it comes to the hardware, um, very different views on different parts of the system. The bit that's most useful is pipelines. Pipelines are generally in good condition uh, and generally easy to reuse for either CO2 or hydrogen purposes. So I think there's likely that a lot of pipelines will get repurposed in that way. But wells are generally in the wrong place for injecting CO2 or hydrogen and certainly for back production. And platforms, well, they're generally old. So if you've had a, an oil and gas platform that's perhaps had a 25, 30, 35, 40 year life, and I'm coming along with a CCS project with a design life of 25 years, I'm beginning to worry about the integrity of the platform. So I think the platforms are relatively unlikely to be used, at least not very much. And the thing to perhaps have in mind is the reason why we have platforms at all. It's because we, we produce out of oil and gas wells a mixture of oil, gas, water, bits of sand, bits of scale. We need to access it for repairs and so on. So um, well access and processing at the point of production are important. In contrast, if you're injecting CO2 or you're injecting hydrogen, you're injecting a very pure product which you have purified onshore. 
So a common um, view in the oil and gas industry is that CO2 is corrosive. Well, it isn't. It's CO2 plus water is corrosive. So all you do is take all the water out on shore and you've got a pretty inert substance that you need to pump to. So subsea injection is a much lower cost alternative. So my view is that um, there's not going to be that much um, reuse and repurposing of old facilities. So I'm afraid the, uh, the decommissioning challenge exists and will remain, and I, I think will remain a, a business for the next few years. It'll be the pipelines which will generally get reused. Thanks, Ian. So uh, let's move to the questions from a very active audience. I'm very pleased to see uh, uh, attendees from all around the world. Um, and one question uh, from Rod Campbell. Do you think that petroleum engineering courses at universities could address future transition requirements by including cryogenic fluids, hydrogen, CO2 interaction at well site, uh, for instance, cap rock fracturing? So the question is expanding uh, what we normally do for oil and gas uh, in, uh, in the uh, classical uh, petroleum engineering to uh, more diverse fluids uh, and the interaction of those fluids with the formation. Yeah, I'm happy to jump in there, Kamel. Um, I think absolutely. Um, you've already described earlier the potential for CO2 storage and how that could grow. And I think this is absolutely what the courses at university should be looking at now. It's looking at these challenges, uh, building the, building out the current syllabus to include hydrogen storage, CO2 storage, understanding each part of the process and doing the necessary research. And I think that's already starting to come through. I know internally here we're, we have uh, studies with universities looking at the the reuse of our reservoirs. So I think it's a, it's a great question and I absolutely agree that that's the way uh, courses need to be pivoting now. Thanks very much, Kevin. So I have a question uh, about the potential uh, of the new offshore basins uh, in the uh, Atlantic. Uh, especially the uh, Mauritania, Senegal, Gambia, uh, Gambia basins, uh, is there a, a potential for them to be a part of the supply of natural gas in the current, uh, let's say, uh, environment that, is, that has uncertainties? Uh, Ian, you were, I think, recently in Mozambique which is somehow in a, in a similar situation. Yeah, in certainly Mozambique's in a similar situation. They will, around about now, be commissioning major floating LNG facility and exporting their, their gas uh, globally. So I, I don't think that the, the geography is actually that significant. It's a, a broader question of, you know, if you've got new oil and gas fields, do you develop them? And remembering how rapidly oil and gas fields de decline, I think it is likely that we will need to keep developing new fields for some time to come. As I said earlier, we still depend heavily on hydrocarbons for supplying our energy. And I think it's unlikely that 
governments or individuals will sort of casually agree to stop using all this energy anytime soon. So I think if, if countries that have made these discoveries can be fairly confident that there will be an application for them, especially if they're gas, because the, the gas, you know, it essentially it produces less carbon dioxide. It's by no means zero, but it's less than things like coal. So I think the argument that says gas is a good transition fuel is a valid one. It reduces our emissions fairly quickly in a way that we can do quickly. And then we go about finding out how to decarbonize the, the gas at scale. So my view is continue to develop. Um, there will be a market for some time to come. But be conscious that if you find something big in 25 years time, it might be less useful to us. Thank you very much to all of you. Uh, we have many uh, very interesting questions uh, that I would have loved to ask you, including ones about the recent uh, announcement on a nuclear fusion and the potential impact of uh, nuclear fusion uh, on the energy mix uh, of the future. Fortunately, we are running out of uh, time. And I would like to uh, close the uh, this very interesting discussion by reminding you that uh, this uh, 2023 SB Offshore Europe conference, which will celebrate uh, 50 years of Offshore Europe conference, will be held between September 5 and September 8 in Aberdeen, Scotland. We certainly look forward to seeing you there. The call for papers is still open and we look forward to having receiving great abstracts and very uh, interesting uh, sessions both from technical sessions and panel sessions so thank you all for attending today wishing you all the very best for this year thank you Camel. thank you everybody thanks, thanks all. thank you all Thanks for listening to the SPE Live podcast. For more content, visit the SPE Energy Stream, the industry's digital pulse at streaming.spe.org. If you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to subscribe and review. Join us next time on the SPE Live podcast.